Welcome back. This is the 15th episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. Joining me today to talk about deep listening and found sound is avant-garde composer and sound artist William Bazinski. Classically trained clarinetist, Bazinski studied at North Texas State University before moving to New York, where he developed his own musical language by creating tape loops and experimenting with audio feedback. Although he gained notoriety through his seminal 2001 album, The Disintegration Loops, Bazinski's unique ambient sound has continued to flourish, making him a fixture in contemporary experimental electronic music. A few years ago, you said that the most important lesson you ever learned was learning how to listen. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that experience. Uh, what does good listening entail? Well, listening <laughs> and not talking. <laughs> but, um, you know, when I, when I mentioned that, I was particularly talking about a class that I had at North Texas State University when I was um, 18. It was the uh, contemporary music class. And that's where we learned about John Cage and all these other exper early experimental uh, composers who were doing all kinds of different things besides writing notes on paper for musicians to play. Mm -hmm. And this was very interesting to me. And um, the teacher took us on an experiment once about deep listening. I think he'd been talking about Cage, he'd been talking about Pauline Oliveras. And we went out into the countryside in Texas and he's like, okay, stretch your ears. See how much you can hear. So we always block out so much, you know, because we have to. We're focused, we've got to, you know, we've got so much going on inside of our heads. We're constantly listening to feedback loops of old garbage and things we have to continually be focused on. We might not even hear a motorcycle coming that could run us down on the street. Right. So, you know, you kind of got to use your ears and pay attention. So in this, you know, experiment, we're out in the woods. Well, okay, there's, oh, there's some birds. Oh, there's some other birds. Oh, there's, I can hear the highway a mile and a half away. Oh somebody's wheel just went off the car and they're careening <laughs> down the highway shooting sparks. You know, a plane's going by, right. you know, things like that. So contemplation and really paying attention, it gets you out of your feedback loops in your head, I think. It can really help with that. And so are you using that kind of listening in your everyday life or would that be maybe too chaotic or something like that? Too intense to listen that closely all the time. No, I love to pay attention and see what's going on, especially because I can be kind of in my head too. So 
especially when I'm wandering around in places I've never been before. It pays, it pays dividends to pay attention. <laughs> How would you say that you were listening before that, like when you were a kid, for example? I read that one of your earliest musical sort of epiphanies was getting to stay up late to watch the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. So how did you listen to that, and how is that listening different from this kind of deep listening that we were just talking about? Well, that was a hair standing on end and wishing it was longer, <laughs> like theirs. I mean, that was a complete, you know, mind-bending, life-changing experience for us boys in that, in that time and for everyone in the world, you know. They just blew people's minds. I mean, the girls were climbing fences, cat glasses steaming up, you know, panties wetting and just screaming, you know. When the Beatles played at Chase Stadium, they didn't even have a PA. They just had their amps, and the girls, the whole stadium was screaming so loud they couldn't even hear themselves. You know, that was my, uh, my great-uncle actually told me the exact same story, that he went to see the Beatles, and that it could have been anybody on stage because you couldn't hear it over everybody screaming for them. That's right. And, you know, I was thinking about them today because I've been touring my ass off. They hardly ever even had to tour. <laughs> Those motherfuckers. They did a couple of little things with jets and, you know, all the works and stuff. And then they just got to be in the studio their whole career. So nice. lucky them. Yeah, must be nice. I mean, when you're listening to music now, are you deep listening or do you ever just kind of listen, listen? I do both. When I... Um, I mean, I don't really listen to music a lot. I'm not like a lot of... Uh, I'm not a music collector, and I'm not uh, a record collector. And, you know, I have to use my ears to do my work, so I can't be listening and working. So quite frequently at home, I don't listen to music, or I'm listening to what I'm working on or something like that. Um, but I do try to pay attention to... I have a lot of friends now that I've met over the last 10 years touring and in this world of new music whose work I love and who have been great supporters of mine. So, yeah, a lot of great records come out. I always get them, listen, and enjoy that so much. That's always refreshing. Young people send me their work. I try to listen when I can. But I don't have a lot of time to play records, unfortunately, as much as I'd like. How did that all sort of change for you when you started playing the clarinet as a young person? Um, do you think that being a musician makes you a better listener, or can anyone get everything out of music? Well, being a musician is something I highly recommend for everyone. I think anyone can do it. It requires discipline, and it's never that much fun at first. At least when you're playing a classical instrument or something, because it's not going to sound that great, and you have to learn the technique and stuff, and then you can throw it away later. Nowadays, anyone can um, experiment with sound with so many of the applications that are available now, like Ableton and Max and all these other things that you can use with your computer. So that's wonderful for people. And music expands your mind, you know, it, uh, it makes you brighter, it makes you smarter. And um, I've read that uh, 
musicians uh, are better at learning languages. And um, so it's a great skill to teach children. And especially melancholy children like me who um, maybe could find a way to uh, express feelings through music that weren't allowed to be expressed or weren't able to be expressed through words. I'm not sure if you read this Fact Magazine essay about ambient music, but in this essay, Lawrence English wrote, ambient proposes a chance for open, impressionistic encounters that welcome a wide array of potential readings, tailoring the music to individual situations and listenings. So do you think that music also has to be open in order to invite open listening? I think it depends on the listener. I don't know. It's a difficult question. I love Lawrence. You know, we just made a new record together, which I'm really excited about, Selva Oscura. And he's brilliant, polymath, brilliant writer, brilliant philosopher, doctor, um, animal husbander. I mean, he's, there's so many things about him, so many layers. Yeah, I think I'm going to leave that one to the listener. <laughs> I mean, I feel like ambient or sort of experimental music is maybe a more challenging listen. So maybe that is what I mean, sort of by... I think it depends on, you know, uh, who's listening. You know, people that like my work are drawn to this sort of thing. And if they like it, they can't get enough of it. Other people maybe don't understand it, they find it repetitive, it doesn't do anything for them. You know, they want something happening every second so that they don't have to, th so that they can block out the thoughts in their head that are constantly these bad feedback loops I've been talking about. You know, if you have to fall in, you have to go through a period like in meditation where you have to let say. go of all this nonsense. And it'll go away if you let it but, if you, it, but if you start feeling threatened by it, you're gonna run and go blast some kind of, you know, pop music or whatever it is that, dance music, whatever it is that helps you get through the day, you know. But uh, I find a lot of my um, people that love my music are artists, writers, architects, filmmakers, creative people who have to spend a lot of time in concentration on their work. And people write me and tell me this helps me fall into my space and I can really concentrate and do what I need to do. It's people good stu music people studying in university yeah. for their, you know, think so. I was going to say it seems like ambient shows, for example, are quite difficult for a lot of people to get deep into, you know, I think people have a lot of trouble sort of staying focused on it. People will be on their phones or having a chat or whatever, do you think? Oh, well, we, we, we kind of discourage that sort of thing. With my shows, you know, frequently in a new place or something, everyone will be standing up in the front when I get there. And it's like, I talk to the audience when I come on. It's like, okay, everybody sit down. <laughs> You know, lie down. Get this is not a standing show. You know, I'm not going to do splits or anything you're going to miss. So, you know, just, yeah, put your phones away, you know. 
you can take some pictures or you know little short little shorty short short videos for Instagram if you want to but that's not what it's about it's about getting away from everything just forgetting everything for an hour and let's just go to outer space so it helps people relax and just fall in especially maybe some newer people that might have heard about it or friends brought them and they're not really sure what to do and so you know then people have an opportunity to just okay let's just chill out for a minute why not you know <laughs> do you get to that kind of meditative state when you're playing oh it totally trips me out every time yeah i have to like stay backstage for like half an hour an hour to just get back in my body definitely obviously since you're sort of quite good at this listening openly or listening deeply I guess that's not limited to music, but also to sort of everyday sounds and noises out in the world. So how do you think this open way of thinking lends itself to discovering music in sort of the everyday around you? Oh, I definitely have my ears open for sounds, and I wish I could have a, you know, an instant button on my phone to just start recording sometimes. I've heard some of the most amazing sounds, like walking in London one day near some big buildings, this amazing drone sound. I don't know what it was, some fans on the back of a building, or a, I don't know what it was, but it was so good. You know, by the time you find the button, it's like, oh, well, that's over. So, you know, but you get inspirations, and um, yeah, I do sometimes make field recordings when I'm here and there and other places. And uh, so there's some, some of those in the, in the archives that I can like scroll through sometimes and see, hmm, what can I do with that? Or, you know, maybe I need a little bit of this here or something mm -hmm. like that, you know. I was gonna ask you what is an, an interesting or unique sound that you've heard lately that maybe you've recorded or uh, that we might not consider musical, but that you've heard in a musical way lately I haven't really done any recording on this tour but um, like I said this one time in London this amazing drone from these huge fans on the back of this big building in a you know downtown I don't remember what area it was but It was something I wished I had gotten some of. But compressors and air conditioners have very rich overtones and can be quite interesting to work with if you know how to work with them. Seems like appliances are sort of like the original loop, like your dishwasher sort of making the same like repetitive noise over and over again, like the hum of your computer. Or oh, yeah, they're good. You know, people say if your baby's crying, turn on the vacuum cleaner, you know. <laughs> but it, I think it's also funny that, you know, you said you, you can't remember where this, where this sound was happening or what, what street it was on or what, what it was exactly, but it's sort of the sound that sticks with you more than anything else. Lately that I can think of, yeah. <laughs> Would you say that it inspires you that loops are sort of everywhere around us? Yeah, this has always inspired me. It's what inspired me with my work. You know, just these, these bad feedback loops in my head from my, you know, childhood, 
traumas and things and uh, and the way you know the ocean works and the way time loops around and so uh, it was just a big question mark and something that I thought hmm, I wonder what can be done with this so we'll let, let's see how this plays out I was reading a Reddit thread yesterday, actually, that asked the question, what unique sound will you never forget? And the answers were everything from uh, the bugle of an elk at sunrise in a national park in America. Another one was the sound of the death rattle made by someone's dying father. So I would like to know, what unique sound will you never forget? Oh, man. Well, one that pops to mind was the sound of my friend's dying cat, Ganesha. Uh, Ganesha was the cat of my friend Junan Mixa from Pluto Cat on Earth, who had been in New York for many years making the most amazing like spacesuit-like costumes out of all recycled fabrics and clothes and they wore all this stuff head to toe and they rode a bicycle that was all like Japanese space age and they were just incredible and after 9-11 you know they got deported because they'd overstayed their visa and they were trying to go to Portland to get out of New York and they were on a train in like middle of the country somewhere and some crazy idiots thought they were aliens and had them taken off the train and so anyway I had to take care of Ganesha June got sent back to Japan Mixa got sent back to New York with her without her passport to see a judge and um, so I was taking care of Ganesha and while I was taking care of him he was quite old he had like a stroke and so he was in really bad shape but he waited for like two weeks until Mixa came. And then he got in her lap and let out the most amazing howl. And just, that was it. Died in her arms. And I was just, we were both just like, oh my God. It was, that, I'll never forget that. That's for sure. You once talked about San Francisco as your favorite city in America because of all its sounds, foghorns, cable car lines, uh, the clicking of electricity lines above. Um, you said that it makes for an extraordinary listening experience. Can you tell me a bit about that? Well, there's something special about these seven hills surrounded by water, fog, foghorns, clicking cable cars, screeching cable cars, these electric buses, you know, car noises, just the usual things you have in other cities, but somehow the way the sounds move around there, it's an impressionable young, um, straight from Texas, you know, wannabe composer with open ears, you know, um, this was like music to my ears and something that I could aspire to, you know, try to create. It was very three-dimensional. Um, 
so it, it was a great inspiration for me like I think I started to achieve something like that when I started to get to the shortwave music stuff a few years later and mm-hmm. stuff like that so there was an interesting interview that you did where the author asked if you were a normal child in terms of your musical tastes. Um, I thought that was sort of funny. Um, so uh, when did your musical interests or endeavors sort of start to veer in a more experimental way? Well, let's see. I don't know. I don't know what a normal child is, and I don't know what a, you know, normal experience is. I mean, if you're talking about people that only listen to top 40 pop music and stuff like that, I mean, we heard that. But when I was growing up, the top 40 pop music was pretty damn good, you know. And, um, and then as I started to be in high school, I had always had friends that were music collectors, kids that worked at music stores that, you know, they had their mom's old Lincoln Continental with a massive sound system in it, and we would drive around eight geeks in it and a couple of joints and listen to all the most avant-garde pop that was coming out at the time, you know. And you know how 17-year-old boys are. They're like, oh, have you heard Gentle Giant, man? (laughs) You know, so, yeah, we heard Bowie and um, Elton John and Led Zeppelin and... Yes, and, you know, all the coolest prog rock and everything, and also the glam rock and all this kind of stuff. Um, Bowie was a huge inspiration because, you know, I was playing classical music in high school, and I was first chair clarinet my junior year, and my teachers wanted me to be, you know, they were grooming me to be first chair New York Philharmonic or something like that. And that's, I wasn't interested. I wanted to be Bowie. You know, it's like, well, no, that's where I'm going. <laughs> so, yeah, huge inspiration there. And then uh, in college, I started meeting all these other artists on the other side of the campus, more in the art school side that had great musical taste and were, whereas the, music school I was in was like half like straight ahead jazz big band and then the classical part was still serial music 12 tone music which I wasn't interested in because we'd already I'd already played that in high school and I was like no it's not for me but then these kids started turning me on to Steve Reich's tape loop stuff and then the music for 18 musicians came out and I thought, wow, this is amazing. And hearing, of course, Philip Glass and Terry Riley and all these other guys. And and then I met Jamie, and he had armfuls of music every day coming home from his record store, James Elaine, yeah, Um, in Berkeley with all the German experimental stuff from the 70s and, you know... Uh, just so many things to listen to and so many options. And so I was able to realize there's so many ways you can go and anything's possible, so just find your way. And I think with the uh, the diagram on the back of discrete music, there's two tape decks showing 
the Frippertronics tape delay system, which I took note of and got some tape decks and some tape and started my way doing my experiments. Can you explain a bit about your process with tape decks? Like, what exactly are you doing? How, how exactly does it work? Well, I started out making loops of tape. You can take a piece of tape. Like, I mean, everyone's playing cassettes now again. So you know what a cassette is. You know if it gets caught in the machine, the tape comes out, and there's this tape. Well, if you cut a piece of that tape and you tape it together, then you have a tape loop. And uh, it's kind of tricky to put it back into a cassette. There are ways to do it. I just saw a a diagram, uh, I think, on the Internet today about how you can do that. But I use reel-to-reel tape decks for that. So it's easier. You can lay them flat, and, and, and they'll go around. And, and so, yeah, I, I bought these machines that had four different speeds, and I would s- try out sounds and change the speed and see what, how it worked, and then make a note of it. And you can write on the tape, you know, and I put an arrow. Okay, this one's good. It goes this way because they have two sides. And then you put the speed you play it at, and then, you know, find another one that oh this goes with that okay this is great let's do this and then let's try this with a little bit of that and then so it was just like cooking I was going to say did, did it take you a long time to kind of get that process right like it's almost like learning a new instrument you know because it's not like your classical music background really helps you in cutting up tape loops no not so much but um, I did learn some very simple techniques at first to make the loops better. One is not cutting the tape at a uh, 90 degree angle. You cut it at a 45 degree angle so that when you splice it back together, you have a little bit of a crossfade so you don't get a hard click. Something like that, something as simple as that. And I guess it was all kind of trial and error. Yeah, I was a mad scientist. I didn't know what I was doing, but I got really good results, and so it was very encouraging. There is an article on Pitchfork about you that says your process is more akin to, like, painting or alchemy because it's a lot of sort of collaging pieces together and stitching them and cutting them up. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I came from a background being taught by painters, and they were really sophisticated music listeners as well. So they turned me on to all the coolest stuff and they were doing really cool big paintings and spending time in their studios. And at that time in New York, we had a big giant, you know, 5,000 square foot loft. Between the three of us, it was 800 a month. So we were having to spend about 225, $300 a month with bills each which was a lot of money back then. And we had to work six days a week to make our rent, but we didn't go out. We didn't go to Studio 54. We didn't go out very much. We came home to our fabulous spaceship and they painted and I tripped out and made shortwave music and the river and the variations for piano and tape and all this shit. So we had a lot going on. Was it inspiring to kind of be in this space with other artists who were all doing sort of Oh yeah, things? it was dream. It was a dream. It was, you know, I mean, I was getting amazing results and, and I, was, I wanted to release it, you know, but there was nothing. 
there was nobody listening. You know, I mean, most people had no idea what I was doing. I mean, they did. And some people in the art world, I had a few little shows in the art world and stuff, but the record companies, you had to go to a major label there, a big indie. There weren't really that many indie labels. You know, Eno had a label. They weren't buying it. Um, so, and I can understand why. I mean, now people send me stuff all the time. I only can release my own work. You know, I, that's all I can concentrate on. But... Um, but did that maybe also work in your favor eventually because nobody else was really doing exactly what you were doing? Who knows? If I had known then it would take 20 years for it to come out, I probably would have slashed my wrist and jumped out of the building at the same time. <laughs> but uh, luckily I didn't know that. So as you mentioned, when you learned about John Cage is really when your eyes and ears were sort of open to this more experimental sound because it showed you all these options that you never knew you had. I'm wondering if that changed your approach to composition yeah it did because before that I didn't I wanted to be a composer but I had no idea of how to do it and I wasn't really the kind of musician that you know I wasn't let's put it this way I wasn't a piano player I was trained on the clarinet so I was used to reading one line of music in, when I'd switched my major to composition, you had to take piano and la, learn how to play piano. I couldn't do it. I couldn't figure out how to read two lines of music. I just couldn't. So that was a flop. So I wasn't going to be an orchestrator. That was obvious. But I had a really cool teacher, Larry Clark, and I was writing these graphic scores and things and doing my tape experiments, and he was very cool, and he, he encouraged me. But he never really taught me anything. He would just say, okay, good, bring me more next week. So I thought, okay, well, okay. But I only stayed there for two years, and then I moved to San Francisco and started off on my trip playing with tape loops and stuff with James. I guess it also helps to just anything you, you do is the right thing because there's no sort of precedent to it. Yeah, I was just a you know stupid kid, open book, with a huge imagination and... Um, usually got in trouble for it. So to be free and just be able to like, you know, smoke a little weed and just like trip out and create these soundscapes, oh, we were all really digging it. So yeah, the results came and it was like, okay. I didn't know if I was a composer, but I knew I enjoyed what I was getting. So I just kept doing it. Do you think that that lesson and sort of being able to have this freedom also made you a bit fearless in a sense because all the, all the options were there and you could kind of push the boundaries as much as totally. you Totally. I was doing whatever I wanted and I wasn't being graded on it, you know, and we were all digging it. So it was like, okay, wow, that just happened. <laughs> the River, for example, was a one live session in the studio one night in real time. And it just, you know, in the middle of it, I had to, the loft was quite large, you know. It was like five times the size of this. I was way in the back, and Jamie was in this big room, and Roger was up there. Bathroom was kind of in the middle. I had to go, you know, the toilet, and tiptoeing through, peeked into Jamie's studio, you know, gesturing like, can you hear this? And 
oh my god and he's like i know (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was really special do you think that this kind of experimental or sort of avant-garde music requires a bit of fearlessness in one way or another sure you have to be willing to get your head chopped off. And this is what I tell two young people. You know, it's like, release work. You know, you're really talented. You're, I like what you're doing. Finish something and then put it out there. Every time you're going into the guillotine, your head could be chopped off. And it's the same with me, every album. But... Sometimes you get to keep your head, so you keep doing it. But you have to finish work, and then you can move on. I interviewed Peter Van Hosen last night, and he was telling me a similar thing, that that's what he tells young artists, is that they're often wondering sort of when to stop working on something. And he's always like, just you need to have a, a point that comes where you just tell yourself to stop, and that's enough, and you have to move on to the next thing. Yeah, it's tricky, especially, I think, with so many options in these little tablets we have now. Um, people get really geeky with gear and, you know, plugins and all this kind of stuff, and it's a lot to experiment. It's great. Learn your gear, learn your stuff, but don't get overwhelmed, you know. You've got to, you know, you've got something really cool going on. Figure out the boundaries of that. And let it be and move on to something else. And then you might have like an album and then you can go back and master it or something like that. People learn in their own way. There's a nice story that you told to The Quietus a few years ago where you said that in your loft in New York, you had a room called The the Land That Time Forgot, Mm -hmm. where you'd keep all your old and sort of unused stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at one point you dug through it and found all these old tapes of yours. Um, Would you mind sort of telling that story for us? Well, yeah, this is uh, a period in uh, late 90s, we're in Arcadia. I had a big studio there, and uh, I had gotten, I guess, a very expensive new development digital audio tape machine, which is the worst technology ever to come out. I wish I'd never gotten one. I have a lot of stuff on DAT tapes that... The machines hardly lasted a few years, and they were really expensive, and and it was an awful medium. It was before uh, CD burners came out. But anyway, I had found all these big cases of all my old tape loops and stuff, and I knew that they were... You know, I know what happens to old tape, and these tapes were old when I bought them. They were used in the 70s when I bought them. So they're, you know, getting close to the end of their shelf life. And um, so I pulled out some of my old works and started, uh, you know, transferring them to digital and was just marveling at what I had done back then and how it sounded. And and it was like, God, this puts all my (laughs) latest work to shame. (laughs) The point was, is that, you know, 
it's good enough, you know, release it, you know. And at that time, Karsten Nikolai, whose studio we're in right now, had just come to New York. This is very shortly after the wall came down. He was from Chemnitz, you know, Karl Markstadt in East Germany. And he had a residency at PS1 in New York. And he was staying downstairs with my uh German neighbors who had the loft downstairs and they always had a room for guests and uh, they had a German connection so he was down there and he came up through this secret staircase we had between the lofts that didn't go to the roof or down to the ground floor and uh, came in when I was transferring shortwave music and was playing in the big speakers in the loft and he was like What's this? <laughs> Is that when you met him for the first time? Yeah. Wow. And so we became very close friends, and he listened to a lot of music and, you know, thought about it. And he was the first one to ask me to release a record, and I've been waiting 20 years to hear that. And I said, yeah, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> so that came out in... I think that was in 93, and it finally came out in 96. In, in this segment of the interview, you were, you were talking about feeling really blown away by the things that you had found in hearing your old work again. Um, and I interviewed uh, Uwe Schmidt a couple months ago now, and he was saying a similar thing about sort of hearing his old music and not remembering that he had made it and feeling like it was a different person that had made it because he just actually had no memory of it. So sort of wondering about your experience of kind of discovering your old work Again. Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, for example, some of the pieces like shortwave music, uh, variations, the river, these were pieces that I finished and tried to release and were made on cassettes and I gave some cassettes away and sent some out and tried to get grants and things. So these pieces I remembered very well and these were like my young masterpieces. You know, these were my major works of that early period and but then there were a lot of loops that I, I was making loops and I wanted to be very involved in mixing at the time that was what I was into so certain ones would come out I'd change the speed listen and be like oh my god this is like an eternal bubble it'll go on forever it's amazing but can I call this my work I mean that maybe that was too easy I don't know I don't know what the, you know so those got put on the side and I worked with the other ones that I could mix and do the things with it like that. So um, when I got to the point of going in the studio in August of, or late July of 2001 to start again, you know, digitizing loops, these loops came up that ended up being the disintegration loops. And these were some of those loops that I totally did not even remember at all. And they just blew my mind, you know. But those are the ones that I knew then as a, you know, with my formal training, well, you don't need to do anything to this. And then they came along and one by one they disintegrated in real time as I was transferring them to digital. So that became what made my career, you know. And so what about when you listen to the disintegration loops now? Do you still get that feeling of, is this mine, or is it definitely, you can see yourself in it, hear yourself in it? No, it's mine. 
<laughs> I, I worked for that music, honey, <laughs> for 25 years, yeah. You know, and I learned at that point, stay back. Let it happen. Listen, pay attention, make sure the levels are right. Stay out of the way. Let this do what it's doing and see what happens. So there's a difference between acting and monitoring. Do you get that feeling often when you're working or when you're sort of listening to maybe a finished piece where you're like, okay, now is the, now is the time to step back and let it just do its thing? Yeah, when it's finished, it's finished. It has to be. And I, you know, I t sometimes it takes me a long time to finish things. But sometimes I know, oh, this is a good, easy baby. You know, this one's done. Great. Good. I don't have a year to work on this. I don't have to. I'm just wondering if you think that, like, I don't know, putting sounds on a tape is giving it another life. When you record those sounds again, is that a second life for the tape? Like, how many lives do you think that an object has or that a tape has? Oh, as long as it lasts. But, um, yeah, I mean, creating art is creating life. And so, you know, this is any... This is an act of creation. It's a positive act for the world. So you're putting love into something and it's going out into the world and it's resonating. And then what about when you play your music live? Uh, how does that all sort of fit into this conversation? It's uh, um, every, every show is different in the way that every space is different. Uh, every audience is different. Um, you know, I have one hour sound check to figure out what the system is like, where, how the room rings out, how to uh, EQ the sound with the sound guys that are there to get the best sound we can get in the empty room, knowing that when it's full, it's going to sound different. So, you know, uh, it's very concentrated. And then during the show, it's a very concentrated listening experience for me and uh, kind of a, you know, almost like a prayerful experience for me to uh, be able to share this with what are just the best audiences now um, all over the world and uh, all of us to be able to hear the music in a big, beautiful space with a big sound system, you know, People love my music. They listen to it in their headphones or they listen to it in their laptops or in their apartments or whatever. But to get to go to a church or a big theater with a massive sound system or something with lots of lights and fog and smoke, I mean, it's, it's so cool. It's like going to outer space on a spaceship for an hour. So it's nice. Is there a particular space that you've played in recently that you want to mention? Well, this tour has been extraordinary. All of the venues have been among the best I've ever played in. Um, it's hard for me to... I have to go back through my journal, but, um, you know, I, I was booked to play in the Diocletian Baths in Rome, the ruins of the second century Diocletian Baths in Rome, outdoors. We did it, and it was amazing experience. I mean, we played in Belize, Georgia. We played the biggest uh, 
like techno disco there underneath like a Soviet era um, flying saucer looking uh, stadium and then it's way down on the bottom and it used to be a swimming pool and now it's this huge techno disco and they had the most massive sound system I've ever seen in my life and it was amazing. It was the first of these ambient early shows they're doing before they turn on the disco and right. it goes all weekend, you know, but uh, they brought in all these big, huge leather cushions and there were 500 people tripping out laying down in there and that was really cool are you thinking about space when you are choosing which venues to play at i don't choose them i have a booking agent <laughs> and he books me and i go where he tells me i mean i was reading an interview of yours where you were talking about how uh, certain sounds obviously sound better in certain places so how how are you thinking about that when you're making your music like no, I make the music in the space that I'm in, and then um, then I have to check it out in different spaces to see, and then when it's getting ready to be released, it goes to a mastering engineer who takes care of kind of making it so it'll work on multiple platforms. So I do the best I can with what I have. So there's never been like a time where you get somewhere and the space just isn't right for your sound? Oh, there have been problems. <laughs> there's always surprises, but there's ways to deal with it with EQs and with the uh, house engineers. There's always something, for example, in uh, On Time Out of Time that I'm, I'm touring now. There's some real cloudy low mids that can work really well in some spaces. In other spaces, they are just like an avalanche of mud. But there's a way to get rid of those and still have the low bass come in and stuff like that. And then also some of the mids, this is always something with me because a lot of my work, especially the tape loop work, is very mid-rangey. Um, certain rings can cause rattles or bother the ear and stuff. So there's ways to you know attenuate that. We have an hour to do it and I kind of usually know what the problem areas can be. Sometimes it's amazing. You go in and the system is just like, oh, I can't believe it. This is going to be so great. Other times you start sweating. So how do you see your musical experiments expanding in the future? Or what do you hope to work with in the future? Well, what we're trying to do now is get more of the work into the orchestral and um, a small ensemble repertory. For example, we've done... Disintegration Loop 1 and 2 uh, at festivals are, um, four or five times now around the world and uh, just had a meeting about maybe doing them in France next year. We'll see. And this is something I'm very interested in. It's fascinating to see musicians play Max's transcriptions of this work. It's a completely different thing, but it's really, really deeply moving and touching, and I love musicians, and you know, musicians will always be around, and they don't require electricity. To get the work back into pencil and paper, and rosin and bows, and stuff like that, this is a dream for me, because the work can live on.